صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنرز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 اي ام اند وذ روبرت مارتن ناصر مشني اند يوسف احمد الريماوي Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Good morning, Rob. How are you doing? Good morning, Nasa. Good morning, listeners. I'm very, very well today. I'm very excited about our, uh, our co-panellists. That we've got on today. Fantastic. So tell us what we've got on, Nasser. Well, without further ado, let's introduce Ali Abunima, a great friend of ours and founder of Electronic Intifada. Good morning. Good evening there, Ali. Good morning to you. And, uh, you know, as, as we always joke, uh, greetings from the past or the future. <laughs> I can never tell. Well, at the moment, with Trump in charge, you guys are in the past. But let's move to the future. And, and sadly, the continuing betrayal of the Palestinians has happened again. The United Arab Emirates has signed an accord, the Abraham Accords, facilitated by Donald Trump. Tell us what the reactions have been, Ali, and your reaction on it. Yeah, well, as people will have heard, uh, the United Arab Emirates uh, agreed to a so-called peace treaty with Israel, even though I'm not aware that those countries were actually at war with each other. Um, and of course, this is being hailed and celebrated by the United States and the European Union, and of course, Israel and the Gulf, and some of the Gulf countries as this great thing that's going to help the Palestinians. Uh, and it specifically was marketed as, uh, you know, in a way, the Emirates got a concession from Israel that Israel put its on hold its uh, plans to annex a large part of the occupied West Bank. And so it's being also marketed as, you know, we've helped the Palestinians here. But really nothing could be further from the Uh, truth. Israel may have postponed formal annexation of the West Bank, but that was already due to American pressure, not because of the UAE. And what's more important is not formal annexation, but annexation on the ground. And that's very much ongoing in terms of Israel continuing to, uh, you know, confiscate Palestinian land for settlements and so on. Um, so, Really, the Palestinian cause is being used as a mask for what is quite a sordid and opportunistic deal, um, which, uh, of course, people, as you, you said, are calling a betrayal of Palestine. But I think it's a big emotional blow for a lot of people. But the reality is that the United Arab Emirates has had uh, increasingly close relations with Israel, in fact, dating back to the 1990s. Um, but in recent years, it's uh, already included such things as intelligence cooperation and even joint military exercises between the United Arab Emirates Air Force and the Israeli Air Force, which is uh, pretty horrifying when you think about mm. what the Israeli Air Force has been responsible for, but also what the United Arab Emirates Air Force has been responsible for in Yemen. And that underscores the sort of the regional geopolitical aspect of this deal, uh, which is the, the, the sort of American effort to uh, redesign the sort of uh, geopolitical infrastructure of the region uh, in the sense that uh, the U.S. is obviously the hegemon, the imperial power, and 
um, Israel and the Gulf states are all clients of the United States, and um, they all see Iran as their major regional uh, rival. And this is, of course, uh, particularly true of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, but also Bahrain um, and, uh, you know, the other countries to a lesser extent, Oman and Qatar and Kuwait and so on. And so this is also about tying these American clients together in an anti-Iran alliance. Um, so it's, that's sort of the big picture here. Um, and the reaction has been uh, obviously very negative among Palestinians. It was welcomed by the European Union. It's been welcomed by politicians in the United States. Um, and it has been uh, welcomed by two governments openly in the region, Oman, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, Bahrain and Oman, uh, whereas Saudi Arabia has remained officially silent. Uh, Jordan has sort of equivocated. Um, and, uh, but what's also, I think, particularly notable is that the United Arab Emirates is one of the most repressive states in the region. And so there has been no opportunity really for, uh, or very little opportunity for citizens of the United Arab Emirates to say what they really think about it, let alone have a say in it. But um, there has been quite a strong reaction from civil society across the Gulf uh, against this. Uh, on the Electronic Intifada, uh, we just published an article um, uh, sort of summarizing a lot of that um, reaction across the Gulf from parliamentarians, from civil society groups, from Palestine solidarity groups across the Gulf, uh, absolutely rejecting this. So uh, it's, it's definitely been a strong negative reaction. One of the realities, Ali, is that it served as a fantastic feather in the cap for Trump for his foreign policy. Is, is there a sense in your mind that perhaps it's choreographed and that, you know, we might already have scheduled Bahrain and Saudi to come in in September, October and some great summit in November just before the election to boost his credentials? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much it actually boosts his credentials. It's like I, I've, I've never heard of a creature... Uh, as such as a voter in this country who says, you know, this, you know, the economy is terrible. Uh, you know, I don't have health care. Uh, things are going to, to hell. But, you know, there's this deal between the UAE and Israel. So that, you know, that's the thing that's tipping me into the president's camp. I think it has very limited uh, uh, purchase on the election here, which, which, you know, goodness knows how that that's going to go, and if we're even going to have a free and fair election. Um, what, but, what about his support for Israel? Doesn't that yes. affect? Yeah, I mean that, but that that's it shores up support and perhaps enthusiasm um, among his supporters who are already most committed. I mean, so he's not really gaining new new converts or winning back people who who've lost him. But yes, it might help to to uh, to generate a bit more enthusiasm in his hardcore base, and that hardcore base includes uh, very importantly, um, you know, uh, very right wing uh, evangelical Christians, Christian Zionists, mm -hmm. and in fact, uh, President Trump said just uh, in recent days when talking about um, 
you know, the, the U.S. recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital and the moving of the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, he said, we did that for the evangelicals, and, and they're even more excited about it than, uh, than, than most Jewish people. The president said that out loud. You know, that, yeah. those are the things that we yeah. say, well, here are his cynical motives. He actually came out and said it, in, you know, in plain language. So, yes, it, it certainly shores up his support with, with uh, that segment. But those are not the people who are, um, you know, uh, likely to, to pick another candidate. So, but that, that said, yes, obviously, they're, they're going to try and get every advantage they can. And this was a feather in his cap, as you say. And they might try to get more, uh, you know, there's been strong hints dropped that, uh, you know, uh, Bahrain, uh, Oman, even Sudan might be next. And there's also whisperings about uh, Morocco. However, you know, and, and the reason those states are all mentioned is because these are governments or, or regimes which over the last few years have been moving very clearly and openly towards normalization with uh, with Israel. You know, Oman welcomed Benjamin Netanyahu on an official visit in October 2018. Bahrain has been doing lots of high-profile events with um, major Israel lobby groups. Uh, and um, Sudan as well, the, the leader of the uh, transitional government in Sudan, uh, General uh, Abdel Fattah Burhan, met uh, a, re, uh, a few months ago with Benjamin Netanyahu in, in Kampala in Uganda. So all those governments have been moving towards normalization. Um, the, I think that the, you know, with the UAE going first, it's partly, um, I, I suppose, they're, they're going to gauge the reaction and see if, if, the, if the reaction, you know, if there's a, a, anger and opposition, but that passes, and they think they can get away with it, then yes, I think the next ones will come along. It's almost like recognition or normalization with Israel becomes the back door into the United States and therefore legitimacy. That's exactly right. That I would say it's the front door front <laughs> rather door. Yeah. than the back door. <laughs> uh, that's exactly right. And you have to remember that these, you know, these governments like the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain feel very vulnerable. And, you know, these, they don't have the military capacity to defend themselves against any serious challenge. I mean, the Saudis have spent billions and billions of, you know, trillions of dollars on weapons. And, uh, you know, anytime they try and engage ground forces in Yemen, they get thrashed. Uh, you know, the, the best they can do, like the United Arab Emirates, is, is just bomb from the air with the horrific results we've seen in Yemen. So these, aren't, these are countries that rely on a major sponsor, and it is the United States, uh, for their security. And, and they are therefore completely dependent on the United States and are in competition with each other as to who can be the most loyal and useful asset for the United States. And part of that game is convincing the, um, you know, the, the, the US government to give you a hearing and to, to to, to treat you as the most favored ally. And all of these governments see the Israel lobby as a crucial asset. If you've got the Israel lobby on your side, then you've got all their lobbying power in Washington to help you as well. And, um, you know, th there's, this has been very clear in the past couple of years uh, in the context of the dispute between 
the various Gulf states. So r recall that in June 2017, uh, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates led a blockade against Qatar, which is a regional rival, which they view as being too independent. And initially, uh, Donald Trump came out on the side of Saudi Arabia and the UAE, which absolutely terrified the Qataris to the point where they truly believed, and I think very reasonably believed, that Washington would give Saudi Arabia uh, and Qatar uh, and the United Arab, Arab Emirates a green light to uh, actually invade Qatar. I think the Qataris believed that could happen and that that wasn't an unreasonable fear. So the Qataris went into this, uh, you know, emergency campaign to win support in Washington. And a huge part of that was uh, courting the Israel lobby to the point where they brought over to Doha uh, such figures as Alan Dershowitz, a major Israel lobbyist, and Morton Klein, the president of Wait For It, the Zionist Organization of America, was brought over to Qatar on a, on a you know, a, a luxury junket and, and uh, met with, with the top officials in the country. They even donated, uh, I think it was about, we, we have an article on this, about $250,000 through a, this was the Qatari government donated $250,000 through the uh, Washington uh, lobby firm that they had hired. They donated this money to several Zionist organizations, including one which does tours for the Israeli army, uh, sort of propaganda tours, and to the Zionist Organization of America. So that was Qatar uh, trying to sort of outbid Saudi Arabia and the UAE in, in showing, you know, yes, we will, we will play ball. And of course, one of the consequences of Qatar's campaign is that they agreed to censor the Al Jazeera undercover documentary on the oh, wow. inner workings of the Israel lobby. That was part of the price Qatar paid to win, uh, you know, win this, this favor in Washington. Of course, that, that documentary, which you, you may have seen, uh, we actually got leaked copies and put it up at the Electronic Intifada. But that's part, that was all part of this bigger story. Amazing. In 1979, when Egypt signed a peace deal with Israel, the Arab League boycotted Egypt for a period of time. Arab League's dead and gone now? Completely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, if anything, the Arab League will praise this. I mean, but to be, to, to be fair, I mean, this is sort of, it is the, the nail in the coffin for the Arab League, because let's remember that in 2002, the Arab League, I think all countries, uh, supported uh, the so-called Arab Peace Initiative, which basically said to Israel, we offer you full normalization, full relations, but in exchange for a comprehensive peace that gives the Palestinians their fully sovereign independent state. And that was sort of um, 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 really already a very concessionary stance from the Arab states. But what the UAE has gone and done now is basically to, to blow up the Arab Peace Initiative because even that minimal leverage is now gone. And it's sort of, the, the formula was, you give the Palestinians their state, we give you normalization. Now it's, you annex more Palestinian land, you kill more Palestinians, you annex Jerusalem, you do whatever you want, 
and will still give you normalization. Yeah, that's terrible. And this is all in the context for the past almost two weeks has been a nightly bombing campaign into Gaza and mainstream media, nothing, complete radio silence. Right, absolutely. And, and of course, it's not just the bombing campaign. You know, what's behind the bombing campaign is that, you know, the, the situation in Gaza has become absolutely, I mean, we keep saying it's desperate. We keep saying it's unlivable. We run out of adjectives for the, the severity of the economic situation in Gaza and the isolation. I mean, you know, you're, you're uh, in, in, in Victoria uh, under a lockdown. Um, and we experienced that here in Chicago. And, you know, it's an experience now that's all over the world. Well, imagine we, being, we have the audacity to complain too, don't we? Right. Well, <laughs> you know. imagine being in a lockdown for 13 years where yeah. you are uh, not allowed to leave your city. You're not allowed to travel abroad. You're not allowed to import uh, things. You, you can't start a business. You can't, you can't, the, the, the basic elements of normal life have been taken away uh, for years and years and years. And that's what Israel's siege of Gaza is. It is undermining the, the, the basis of, of civilized, organized life in the Gaza Strip. And so what happens is that people are desperate. They protest. They've been sending these... Uh, you know, incendiary balloons, which which start brush fires into, uh, you know, over the boundary into Israel. It's a symbolic protest. These balloons have never hurt a single human being, but it's to say we're here. Two million people, half of us children, locked into what is in a giant ghetto, and the world is ignoring us. And Israel responds to these protest balloons with air raids with F-16s dropping bombs. And the world is silent. They're silent about the bombing, but I would say even more uh, outrageous and more serious, they're silent about the siege, which is uh, uh, 24-7, 365 days a year, warfare against every man, woman, and child in the Gaza Strip. Sickening, you know, when we talk about it in that, in that perspective, and we often speak about Gaza, we've interviewed people from Gaza, but it, the humanitarian disaster and plight that is there is just a stain on all of us. And one day, God willing, humanity will look back on it and say, this, how did we stand by and allow this to happen? I think we should also just remind our listeners too that when um, Israel bombed Gaza, they're bombing schools and hospitals, water, all of those things perfectly, intentionally to slowly kill the Palestinians. And unfortunately, that it's not so slow anymore. It's speeding up. Ali, you're in the middle of an election campaign and domestically, there's been a little bit of movement. I mean, it's, we're not going to say it's anywhere near where it needs to be. But the reality is that the squad, the Democratic four-pack there, they've all been re-elected. Rashida got back with an increased majority vote. Ilhan uh, Omar, she did. But also we had a couple of others, Corey Bush and Jamal Brown. Uh, yeah, Jamal Bowman, yeah. Bowman, sorry, excuse me. Corey Bush and Jamal Bowman are both, Corey at least is a BDS supporter, Linda Sarsour is on her advisory committee. They ran against two very Zionist supporters, Jamal Brown, uh, Bowman, he beat Elliot Engel, a 16-term proper, proper Jew. He's a Jew, but a real hardcore Zionist. Smashed him. Is there something to be optimistic about there? I think there is a sea change going on in the United States. And uh, the, these election... Um, results are sort of indicators of this sea change that's happening where younger people are moving to the left in general uh, and uh, the demographic shift in the country is moving things to the left and this is um, this is something that is happening across 
sort of the uh, ethnic and religious uh, mix of the United States. So you, you mentioned that uh, Elliot Engel is Jewish. Uh, he's a congressman from New York. Uh, but this is very much happening within the Jewish communities, where we see really insurgent um, youth movements among young American Jews that absolutely reject blanket support for Israel, that are increasingly anti-Zionist and are increasingly vocal. So, you know, you will, you will probably have heard of Jewish Voice for Peace, but there's also uh, groups, uh, a group called If Not Now and, um, and others. And these changes that, that you're seeing are really happening in the base of the Democratic Party across uh, racial and demographic groups, but particularly among uh, uh, black and and brown people, people of color, um, immigrant communities, uh, and younger people, and that's what you see. What what you see increasingly is that uh, support for Palestine is now starting to be taken for granted as a progressive stance, and it's. Uh, increasingly difficult, if not impossible, to present yourself as a progressive in American politics if you are silent about what Israel is doing or if you spout the traditional pro-Israel positions that um, that characterized the uh, bipartisan or cross-party uh, consensus. That consensus has broken down and there is, in a sense, a civil war within the Democratic Party, which you see on a whole range of issues. Like we have been, you know, the, the Americans have been saddled with Joe Biden, who is a political dinosaur from another era, who is not even willing to promise people or to, to, to offer a plan in the middle of a pandemic for universal health care for Medicare, what we call Medicare for all. He's not willing to do that in the middle of a pandemic. And so that is driving a lot of the insurgency and the outrage that the Democratic Party establishment is, is simply in the pockets of corporations, is really on the same side as Donald Trump. Uh, but Palestine is within that mix. And we've seen it particularly in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement, where there's been a really strong identification between, um, you know, the Palestine Solidarity Movement and people fighting racial violence and police violence in the United States, to the point where the Israel lobby has taken aim at the Black Lives Matter movement because it sees it as, as a growing strategic threat to um, public and elite support for Israel in the US. We've got the same reality here where we have a Black Lives Matter movement as well. And the, the Zionists here have been caught out because the reality of Zionism is that once it is settler colonialism, as you have there, as we have here, they need to be in that powerful white space. And it that powerful white space is not comfortable, not comfortable with equality amongst any people of color, let alone it's uh, indigenous or, or people of color. We had Linda Sarsour. She actually attended a, a DNC event and her job there was to promote Muslim engagement. Now, the Biden campaign came out, quickly disassociated themselves from her and from it, saying, you know, because whenever you say BDS, you've actually got to put in the pre or post nominal, the, the anti-Semitic BDS campaign. How's that going to play out, you think? Well, you know, I mean, Linda Sarsour has been a, sort of a really loyal uh a foot soldier for the Democratic Party. I mean, she she was uh, 
you know, supported Bernie Sanders, but once Bernie Sanders folded up his his campaign, she seems to have moved uh, very smoothly towards supporting the party, and I assume supporting its uh, its its nominee Joe Biden and and uh, his running mate Kamala Harris, and so. It's it's pretty remarkable that the campaign is attacking her and really buying into and 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 uh, amplifying the Islamophobic and far right smear campaign against Linda Sarsour, who, as I said, has been you know very very loyal to the, to the Democratic Party. I, I, do, I don't know her personally, but in, in terms of seeing her politics as a as a public figure, she she's she's certainly done nothing to deserve that. Uh, attack being thrown under the bus but you know i have to admit i could not bring myself to watch the uh democratic convention the virtual convention it's just to me it's just so nauseating but i saw people commenting i saw journalists commenting that um you know of the dozens of speakers they've had because they've given everyone these uh uh one minute speaking slots they they haven't had a single muslim american speaker that's Again, that's what I've read. I, I, I'd have to verify, verify that. But certainly there is no prominent uh, outreach to the Muslim community, particularly um, uh, in uh, you know, states like Michigan, where, which are supposedly crucial battleground states, and there's a very large Arab, both Arab-American and Muslim uh, community. On the contrary, it's, it's just been insult after insult. But that, that's usually... That's usually uh, the case. But the reason I mention that is not because I would expect anything uh, good for these communities from the Democratic Party, but that's the reality of a party that also tries to market itself as the anti-Trump, that, um, you know, uh, that celebrates diversity and welcomes everyone and, and you know, is sort of the, 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 the rainbow party. It's notable also that... The, the, who did the the uh, Democratic Party give major primetime speaking slots to? Is uh, Colin Powell? Colin Powell, yeah. You know who who is responsible? Who has blood, the blood on his hands of hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, if not millions? And what message does that send about what this party has learned from you know its supposed uh, uh, realizing after the fact that the Iraq War was a bad idea? or its respect for Muslim and Arab lives. Yeah, zero. I mean, we've only got a couple of minutes to go. One of the things a couple of people I've spoken to, Americans, have gone that Trump is almost being good for Palestine in that people who might have been peppers, progressive, except for Palestine, have suddenly gone, well, Trump's with Israel. I must be with Palestine. Yeah, I think back when Trump was first elected, I wrote an article suggesting that Trump would accelerate the loss of support for Israel in the United States. And oh. um, I, I, th I think that that is happening. But I think it's, it's more complicated in the sense that what, what is happening in the US, and this may be true in Australia as well, uh, is the polarization of support for Israel. Whereas support for Israel a generation ago, even into the 1990s and, and early 2000s, was very much uh, a consensus issue. Uh, you know, you'd have, as you said, these Democrats who would be very progressive on all sorts of issues, but they were like to the right of Ariel Sharon when it came to Palestine. And that has changed. And Israel has become really a right-wing issue, 
uh, it's become a Republican issue. And it's become more than that, if you look democratic, demographically, you know, support for Israel tends to be whiter, older, and more religious, especially more Christian. Uh, mm. And we, rem- we, we have to remember that the s- strongest and largest uh, block of support for Israel in the, in the United States is Christian. And wh- wherever you see people getting younger, more racially and ethnically diverse, coming from different backgrounds, you see support for Israel dropping and an identification and support for Palestinians going up. And Israel lobby groups have, have identified this as a really an existential and urgent threat to long-term support for the United States. And that's what you see. I mean, I'm not always, a, you know, I, I don't always praise the squad for what they say, because they sometimes say things I don't agree with when it comes to Palestine. I think I think they still need to be kindly. I think that there's still work to be done in educating them on the issue. But nonetheless, the fact that they're willing to challenge the consensus at all, it should be taken as a sign of the, the change at the grassroots. It's not that they're brilliant or they're heroes. It's that the fact that they can say these things now is a reflection of the changes that are happening at the grassroots. And that's very real. And I think that it is not reflected right now in terms of policy in the United States, but that is increasingly, uh, it's increasingly untenable to call yourself progressive and not be a know. supporter of Palestine. Yeah. Ali Abunima, thank you so very much for joining us on Palestine Remembered, and we look forward to welcoming you back to Australia soon. Thank you. I, w- I would love that. I can't wait till we can actually meet people again. We didn't get a chance to introduce Ali properly before. Ali Abunima is a Palestinian American journalist. He's a resident of Chicago, regularly published in the Chicago Tribune and the Los Angeles Times. He's co-founder of the Electronic Intifada. He has appeared on many television discussion programs, including CNN, MSNBC, PBS and other networks. He's also the author of two books, One Country and The Battle for Justice in Palestine, a truly remarkable Palestinian. Remember, share the podcast and there's never been a better time to free Palestine.